Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. In considering the career of today's guest, a word that instantly comes to mind is icon. A legendary drag performer whose work has trailblazed and set the standard for a whole generation of drag queens, she continues to sell out shows across the country and push boundaries with the new and exciting material. As a music artist and performer, she was one half of the popular electro-clash duo Dirty Sanchez, and as a comedy writer, she's written for such luminaries as Joan Rivers, Ross Matthews, and Elvira. She's appeared in numerous films as a celebrated playwright and is probably the biggest Carrie superfan in existence. Please welcome the legendary Jackie Beat. Not probably. I am the biggest Carrie fan in the entire world. And we're going to reveal that to the world today if they don't already know. Oh, I hope there's not a trivia quiz. Oh, no. Because <laughs> I, I feel like you would defeat me. I probably down. would. Uh, well, thank you for coming to the show today, Jackie. Thank you for having me. I wish people could see where we're sitting. This is so glamorous. And of course, I'm in full drag. <laughs> yes. I, this look is everything. Isn't it? It's Yeah. <laughs> This is the look people are ripping off left and right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now that I have you here on the couch, uh, why don't we start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question that I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Uh, Why does horror appeal to you? What Mm -hmm. do you think the connection is for other people, or what's the draw, but why horror? Well, I immediately think why drag? Why horror? Why drag? Mm-hmm. I like anything heightened. I like anything that is over the top. I like anything that's somewhat campy. I like anything that is dreamlike. So horror is seldom, you know, way back here. It's usually right in your face right. and visceral and like a roller coaster ride. So I just, it's big and loud and garish and scary. It's it's me. <laughs> <laughs> so you do you feel that there is a connection between a celebration of horror and and dra- your drag identity? Well, it's not quite as overt as like Peaches Christ. Sure. You know, I mean, she's like the queen of horror as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But uh I, you know, I grew up in the 70s, so I just, the things that, I don't know how to, you know, I'm just obsessed with certain movies and images and, you know, and a lot of horror, I like it when the horror, I love a good twist, you know, and I love it when the horror is the ultimate betrayal, like, you know, the original Stepford Wives, like, oh my God, you can't even trust your own fucking husband. Can I use the F word? Yes. Fucking fuck, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, uh, you know, I do, I I do love a good sort of uh, Twilight Zone, you know, style twist. Right. Well, I think it speaks to what you said about that sort of like heightened. There's a drama to it. The idea that like if the 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 twist at the end of Stepford Wives when Catherine Ross is walking through the grocery store, that's like a, a clutch your pearls moment. Oh God! And uh, you know Rod Serling, though the straight chimney smoker that he was, he like knew a reveal. He loved to drop that at the end of an episode of, of Twilight Zone. Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting because I've I've had peaches on and I've had uh, you know other spooky queens like the Boulets on, and one of the things that we've talked talked about is sort of not necessarily the the relation to dragon horror per se is the relation to the drama of it all Mm -hmm. and i think that you said that you really like heightened things no one said that before but i find that really interesting well that's why i don't understand and again anybody can do whatever they want obviously i will preface it with that to me i never want to look 
like the girl next door. Right. I never want to look like I'm passing. I never want to look fishy, you know, right. per se. I, I, you know, listen, you can go to a strip mall and buy clothes for $5. And if you're a creative person, you can warp it and twist it into something interesting. But these queens that just, if I want to see that, I'll go to the mall and look at a real girl. Right. I want giant hair. I want, and sometimes the smaller the hair, the more interesting because, oh, now you're doing a mom look or, you know, but um, yeah, I just, you need to twist it and heighten it and warp it and, so would that fit into what your definition of drag is? I'm interested to hear what different people's definition of drag is, because there are, of course, some people who view it as as the, the gender flip. But then there are people like Cassandra Peterson, who is Elvira. She is both the woman portraying a woman. But that, to me, is a drag character. Uh, oh, totally. I mean, I, I used to say this years ago. It's so funny. Someone was just talking about this. I think Alaska was talking about it. She did an interview for Playboy, and it was really amazing. And Alaska said, you know, a lot of drag queens always, you know, make such a big deal about pointing out that it's just their job. And, you know, during the day, they don't walk around the house, you know, in a marabou-trimmed, you know, (laughs) peignoir. I'm paraphrasing. She didn't say all that. She can barely put a sentence together. (laughs) Anyway, I love her. No, but my point is, I used to really always point that out. I just felt the need to separate myself and say, listen, I'm just doing a high concept character like Pee Wee Herman or Elvira. And it just so happens that, you know, the character's female and the person beneath it is male. It's partially true. Mm -hmm. I don't walk around the house in a kimono. You know what I mean? But I'm pretty out there. And I'm also, I don't think you can dress like a woman for 30 years for any reason and not consider yourself somewhere on the trans spectrum, if you will. I am so um, attracted and drawn to anything feminine. And one of the reasons is, and I've said this many times, is because in this society, women can express themselves more. Physically, their outfits, their hair, their shoes, everything, colors, makeup, And then you're singing a song and you can um, show even more emotion. You know, men are supposed to, you know, hide emotion. And so, you know, camp, tragedy, joy, all of it. Which, if anyone has ever gone to see a show of yours, you put all of that on display. It's it's always a very heightened experience. Uh, and And I hate to cut you off. It's also not that far removed from me. Like, I don't do a really over-the-top female voice, per se. Like, I studied at Second City a million years ago, and my teacher told me, you know, like, wear your character like a thin veil. So it is heightened, but it's really me. Right. Because if it's too, you know, that's why some actors are amazing. You're like, yeah, but she always plays herself, and it's like, I mean, even if you look at Meryl Streep, who kind of disappears into a role and maybe she physically looks different and she's doing an accent, you're really, that's Meryl Streep. And everybody wants to be in the room with Meryl Streep. I don't know if I'm making any sense at all. I've had a lot of caffeine at lunch. Oh, no. I mean, (laughs) I'm on four cups of coffee myself. That's just how I get through the day. Uh, But let's take it back then to the pre-Jackie days. Were you always interested in performing? At what point in your life did you know that entertainment was where it was at for you? Well, 
I grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mm-hmm. My mom was uh, born in Milan, and she was raised in a convent slash orphanage. And oh my God, the horror stories! I can talk imagine. About, yeah. yeah, and my dad was, you know, raised during the depression and was in the Navy. So, you know, you would think like, oh, a Catholic upbringing and then this sort of macho, you know, conservative, stereotypically male persona. But the two of them, I always say they were smart enough to accept the biological reality of gay people. Right. And their best friends were a gay couple in Scottsdale, Arizona in the 60s and 70s, Bob and Jim, and they did everything together and Things have changed a little, but back then there really was like a butch and a femme in oh, most yeah. in most gay relationships. So my dad and Bob would drink beer and build things in the garage. And, you know, my mom and Jim would have a cocktail and go shopping. And then the four of them would do things together all the time. So my biggest thing growing up was everyone knew I was gay from day one. Right. So the hardest part of coming out was like, how dare you assume that I'm gay just because I know every line from every sketch on the Carol Burnett show, which gets us to your question. Right. And I actually can answer a question on rare occasion. I grew up watching Cher, you know, the Carol Burnett show, like it really formed who I am. So it's a certain amount of glamour, but also not taking yourself too seriously and being funny. Right. And I tell people my mom was like B. Arthur because she was very judgmental and very dry. Mm -hmm. And my dad was like Dick Van Dyke. And I feel like I am the love child of B. Arthur and Dick Van Dyke, which is, you know, sort of dry, judgmental, cunty, but ultimately a clown. Right. And both of those characters also have tremendous hearts, too. I agree. And they were on an episode of The Golden Girls where he played a, a lawyer who wanted to be a clown. I, <laughs> they dated. I, I guess I missed that episode, which I, is, I'm now going to get angry comments from, from the gays on the Internet. How did you not see this episode of Golden Girls? <laughs> now, there's the horror. There's your gay horror. Well, talk about heightened characters. You know, you've got someone like Dorothy or, you know, uh, Dick Van Dyke, who curated a persona of his own. Those are sort of the light comedic characters that informed Jackie Beat early mm-hmm. on. But of course, then you discover Carrie, which tell me about that moment. I will never forget my sister Vicky said, I just saw this movie and you have to see it. And this was 1976. All right, I'm going to do the math here. So I was, oh God, I was 13. I was born in 1963. I'm fucking 54 years old. (laughs) Anyway, so my sister said, you have to come see this movie. I'm not kidding you. It changed my life. Everything about it. Okay, I seriously feel myself (laughs) tearing up. First of all, I immediately think of the like her covered in blood with that midnight blue behind her. Mm -hmm. Like just the colors. It was so fucking gorgeous. And it was so horrible and poetic and it was just everything. And the movie is not perfect. I mean, there are flaws, you know, there's little parts where he speeds up the film and I'm like, oh, why did you do that? But, you know, whatever. But I just remember, first of all, I remember thinking, why did you bring me to this movie? There's a blowjob scene. (laughs) And, you know, I'm this little kid and I 
you know, uh, worship my older sister. And I'm like, oh, I'm so uncomfortable. But I distinctly remember the prom scene. I mean, it was like taking drugs for the first time. I imagine it's like somebody shooting up and just like, ah, like, oh my God, what is happening? The split screen, the colors, the slow motion, the that penthouse soft focus, like it's just fucking perfect. What I really like, and I, I'm sure that many people have commented on this over the years, but as someone who exists a lot in genre, it is so easy to use darkness to affect a scare. But what you look at what Brian De Palma did with Carrie in the use of color, I think is so important to, to show that you can set a mood with vibrancy and still terrify people. I agree. And a lot of people say it was the first pop horror movie mm-hmm. and I always remind people like, oh why do you love it so much and it wasn't really that big of a deal and I'm like it changed everything first right. of all it was a relatively low budget I mean that's why he couldn't destroy the entire town like in the book right it was a relatively low budget movie with a bunch of unknowns other than Piper Laurie but she was well past her expiration date I, you know listen not on my in my opinion in right. Hollywood's I mean she had uh, retired and moved to Woodstock. But my point is people forget that this movie was really a relatively big nothing, you know? Right. And it got Best Supporting Actress and Best Actress Academy Award nominations. For a horror movie, a teen horror movie, unheard of. It is unheard of. Even now. I mean, it's it's very difficult for horror movies to break uh, through to the Academy's awareness. They still, there's always this commentary that horror is akin to porn uh, to members of the Academy. And I mean, I'm fine with that, but. Well, listen, nobody can watch the movie, Carrie, and not realize just how flawless those two performances are. I mean flawless. And Brian De Palma has talked about Piper Laurie walking right up to the line and maybe putting her toe just a little over it. Because, you know, listen, I love Mommy Dearest, but it's a joke. Yeah. You know, it's like, and it's difficult. And I would rather have somebody try and fail spectacularly than like, oh, I'm just going to stay safe back here. But my point is like, oh, I mean, she went for it. Right. And and the misunderstanding, the fact that she thought it was a black comedy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know all that. Yeah. I mean, it just whatever works. It's almost like when you mishear a lyric in a song and you're like, that's brilliant. And then somebody tells you the real lyric and you're like, that's not brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, is it true Maybe you can confirm this, because I knew about Piper Laurie uh, believing that it was a black comedy, but I also heard that De Palma gave direction to Travolta and Nancy Allen that they were in a teen comedy. And that's why their kind of bullying is sort of heightened. I don't know if you've read that or not. You know, that's weird. I don't think I've ever read that. But it makes sense immediately when you say it. It makes sense because they're the comic relief, sort of cartoonish... And their cruelty is so heightened in yeah. a way that, like, it works in the world. But I think that if you had read it in the script, they probably, if they thought they were in a searing drama, would not have performed it like that. Yeah. And that's the other thing. The movie's all over the place as far right. as you have these scenes where it's like, oh, my God, you're tearing my heart out with this, you know, mm-hmm. speech. And then you have, like, total ridiculous slapstick, you know. 
Well, it will probably come as no surprise to you who loves this movie so much that over the course of this series, Dead for Filth, of all the different horror filmmakers and actors and creators that we've had on, the most referenced film for people kind of like realizing there was a correlation between their queer identity and their love of horror is always Carrie. Carrie always comes up. And uh, I mean, I'm sure there's the, you know, the obvious, the outsider and the othering of what happens to Carrie. But do you, because you're so invested in the film, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I have a stock answer. Usually when people are like, why is it your favorite movie? I say, because the moral of the story is don't mess with the freak. Right. So, yes, that's the sort of surface level obvious. But it's also... You know, I bought a house in Highland Park like 10 years ago and this straight friend of mine came over and he was sitting there looking around at the house and he's like, you know what I love about this place? It's shamelessly beautiful. And it really struck me like, oh, and he's like, this is what I imagine the inside of your brain looks like. (laughs) So that's the way I feel about Carrie, that it's it's not afraid to be beautiful, Mm -hmm. physically beautiful, the lighting, the color, like all like what we said. And even... You know, and again, it's, well, it's not the same as, um, it's not the same as, um, as uh, Dario Argento, you know, where it's sort of operatic. I'm really like in my mind right now. My point is like, he does tableaus and, you know, like, oh, it's almost like this woman getting killed is, is, it's, I don't want to say it's gorgeous, but it is, um, stylized right but in Carrie it's shamelessly beautiful Mm -hmm. and shamelessly touching and like you're really gonna go there I mean you totally listen you want to hate that mother right nobody hates religion more than I do I mean literally it's my I have no tolerance it's terrible yes I mean I admit it it's just I can't I think it's done more harm than good and then you watch that movie and you're just like oh she's horrible and Blah, blah, blah. But then she has that speech, which Brian De Palma almost cut out, where she explains exactly why she is who and how she is. I do appreciate that almost every character is given some pathos. Maybe not Chris Harkinson, but everybody else. Where you sort of kind of get but where we all from. knew that girl in high school. We did. It's yeah. like, okay, you got tits before anyone else. This is, you, you know, you're all about your Bonnie Bell, you know, lip smackers and uh, Dr. Pepper flavored. Um, yeah, we all knew that girl. So she didn't even need a backstory. Right. It's like, okay, this is all you've got. And you're just mean and, you know, pretty. So seeing this movie with your sister. Yes. I kind of feel like based just on your love of it and how passionate you get talking about it. I feel like it it maybe changed a little bit of the course of your life in the way that I know that you were a big collector of items from the film. Uh, How do you think that that experience and how deeply rooted uh, Carrie took hold of, of you, how did that inform Jackie later? If at all, and maybe not. It's kind of hard to, figure that out right you know what i mean it's like but this is a horror podcast so i have to ask oh of course (laughs) and i'm the guest so i have to answer (laughs) or i get murdered that's how we do here yeah yeah i signed the paperwork um (laughs) well i just think like anything that affects you listen going to disneyland and going through the haunted mansion right totally changed 
Like when I sat down to do my makeup for the first time, did I consciously think of Madame Leota? No. Right. But all those Disney villainesses and her came, you know, were, were in there somewhere. So, yeah, I mean, I feel the same way about like maybe... Like, I remember going to see a double feature of Rear Window and Vertigo. Mm. And I walked out of the theater and I was like, I'm moving to L.A. I need to work in the business somehow. Right. That was just too much. So I do distinctly remember that conscious choice. But with Carrie, I think it's just one of those, you know, I also tell people like one of my favorite things in the entire world is people get all dressed up to have the time of their lives. And then... All of a sudden, the smile on their face turns to horror, usually in slow motion, and all hell breaks loose, and then their 70s outfit and hairstyle is ruined. So that's why I love the Poseidon Adventure, and I love (laughs) Carrie, and I know it's not a 70s movie, but I even love Die Hard, because I just love like, yay, we're having the... What? (laughs) No! (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Oh my gosh. God, I was obsessed with the Poseidon Adventure. The Poseidon Adventure is great. I think the thing that we don't really have in today's era of uh, cinema, I think they try, but we don't get like the disaster movies of yesteryear. The Poseidon Adventure, the airport movies, Earthquake, where Ava Gardner is playing someone's daughter, even though she's 15 years older than them. That kind of deal. (laughs) I I love love that because those are horror movies in their way. Yeah, Uh, totally. And then you have the really cheesy stuff like, I think there was a TV movie of the week called terror at 30,000 feet or maybe it's horror at 30,000 and it's total airport meets exorcist oh my and there's a like yeah there's like the devils on the plane and all this stuff is bubbling up from the floor of the plane and so it's just like oh these two things are real hot right now let's do it well anyone who's flown commercially lately also knows that's not too far from the truth yeah now uh (laughs) can i i there's i have another thing in my mind that like i want to Another thing about Carrie is it was the first movie to say high school girls are monsters or high school kids, kids in general. Monsters, yeah. But, you know, and then you think the girls are so sweet. They're monsters mm-hmm. and they all, you know, they hate each other and they're petty and they're brutal. And it really, you know, now it's just a thing. Yeah. So it's like if you think of the first movie where a child was evil, you know, this was the first like teenagers are monsters what i like too is de palma took time that even though there are characters we only see for like a beat we know each of those girls they're, they're not just like stock extras like when you see edie mcclurg and yeah in gym class you're like oh i knew her edie and i knew had that, no lines yeah but she stands out like you, yeah you could, no i'm saying she does yeah. in the movie but right. she had no lines in the script and he let her ad lib and she just went for it and she's great oh i love her What's she going to wear? A sackcloth? (laughs) Yeah. So so you... You know what it is? It's that pecking order. Yes. And even Edie McClurg with like her big glasses and like, you know, she's overweight. It's like, oh, I need someone to pick on. Right. And carries that person. Because if I don't have someone to pick on, they may pick on me. Yeah. And also like, you know, it's just that classic, like, I got to make myself feel better. Right. You know? So you mentioned seeing the double feature of the Hitchcock double feature that mm-hmm. kind of inspired you to move to L.A. And then you also talked about going on uh, the Haunted Mansion and how it kind of maybe 
subconsciously inspired your makeup for the first time. What I do love, in, in uh, addition to Carrie being referenced frequently, is how many guests uh, reference the fact that Disney villains were sort of their gateway to horror villain. Yeah. And I, I love that. Uh, you know, pot is a gateway drug and Disney villains are, are, a, are gateway a gateway drag. <laughs> so you moved here to become a performer. We talked about how you had an interest in, in uh, entertainment and performing. And I read that uh, when you first created Jackie Beat, it was actually uh, Jackie was born as a joke that you were doing. Is that true? Well, everything to me starts as a joke. And then, you know, I didn't think about it at the time, but it's almost like when you're flirting with someone, if you act like you're joking and then they reject you, you can like, oh, I was only kidding. Right. So if you try something and you're only joking, I was only kidding. You know, I'm right. not a failure. Well, I wasn't serious. <laughs> so I approach everything as a joke. Our band, Dirty Sanchez, they hate it when I say this. It was a total joke. It was like, oh, this fucking dance music that's all about, you know, I mean, we did a song called Fucking on the Dance Floor. It was about as ridiculous as you could get. And then really rich Italian Satanists was like this love letter to Dario Argento. These people who are just so jaded and bored that the only thing they have left is just killing people. Which I adore both of those songs. In fact, Fucking on the Dance Floor includes one of my favorite uh, dance lyrics ever. You're such a black lacquer table. Because what's that mean? Like, I, I just, I love... Uh, it was just <laughs> the ultimate 80s imagery. Yes, but it's great. Because I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, I love that. You're such a beauty shop nagel. Yeah. Like those fake nagels. Yes. Like, yeah, like that's not real. Um, but yeah, uh, I can't remember the question. <laughs> oh, so you had moved here. Well, how long were you working uh, as a performer or, you know, trying to to break through as a performer before you created Jackie and I had asked oh to start as a joke, joke. that yeah, was yeah. The, yeah. yeah well I mean ultimately I'm a comedian mm -hmm. seriously I think ultimately my mom was really depressed this gorgeous Italian woman who should have stayed in Italy and become an actress and married you know a prince I don't know but she you know married this guy from Yakima Washington and moved to you know West Covina, California, and had three kids. She was miserable. And she was also clinically depressed before there were commercials on TV about it. So as her little gay son, it was my job to make her smile. And if I could make her laugh, I hit the jackpot. So ultimately, I am a comedian and I want right. to lighten the mood. That's the moment I said that, I realized, you know, but a lot of my stuff is really serious and forcing people like, you know, to deal with their politics and their bullshit. But I mean, just a big fan of irony, you right. know. So I guess my point is that, yeah, I approach everything as a joke, but I take jokes very seriously. Right. So um, when I first moved to L.A. in the 80s, which, by the way, was fucking amazing. Seriously, the bands, K-Rock. Melrose. Melrose was all thrift stores, actual thrift stores, not overpriced, you know, garbage. Right. Nobody would be caught dead wearing a designer label or something with like, you know, like a logo on it. We all had to have our own look. And, um, you know, that was sort of so ugly. It's 
gorgeous, which is another thing I love. You know, right. never underestimate the power of hideous. <laughs> so, um, and I just would love, I like people to look at me and go, is she serious? Like, does she think that looks good? And if it's too ugly, then it's obvious that you're trying to be ugly. Right. But if you just, you know, and that's how I feel about my, my um, material. Like, is she serious? Like, I don't know if I'm making any sense. No, it makes total sense. So that's because you were talking about how you just like to play with the comedy of it all. And mm -hmm. so, so Jackie being born out of that makes sense because while you said you like comedy, you take comedy seriously. So if Jackie's born out of a joke and evolves from there, of course you're going to take that seriously. Yeah. All right. And I've seen other queens try to do what I do, and I'm not saying that it's impossible. Right. But I'm just saying it's easy to watch somebody and go, oh, I'm going to be a bitchy queen. Yeah. I'm going to make fun of the audience and I'm going to read them to filth. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, the first mistake you made was you never make fun of yourself. Right. If you walk out there and you make fun of yourself and you don't take yourself too seriously and you do self-deprecating humor, then when you go out into the audience and you're kind of making fun of people. Right. They're you with can, you. They're with you and yeah. they know that there's a, and there's also like a certain affection I don't think it's mean-spirited. Right. And there's also a little bit of, like, I really love uh, ignorance. You know, mm -hmm. like, sometimes I'll say, like, I'll do lyrics and, and say things in songs that are just so horrible. Right. But if you really dismantle the joke, you're laughing at the person who's stupid enough to say that. Right. I have a song, uh, Brian Adams has that old song, Heaven. Oh, yeah. And, uh... I just had this flash that, God, I hope I'm not talking about like the exact same stuff I talked about in like the last podcast I did. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I do the song Heaven and I call it Seven and it's about dating a seven-year-old. <laughs> and I have to literally point out we are not laughing at the victim right. who truly is a victim. I, it's so light and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm laughing at this person who thinks this is a valid relationship. Sure. When I know? think that and there's some shock value right. in it. Don't get me wrong. I have a mortgage to pay. <laughs> well, I think that people who come to see a Jackie Beat show probably should be aware of, of what you do. But I do want to ask, because when you began drag, there, as opposed to the, the landscape of now, there has been a change in how we perceive things. And I've always viewed drag, uh, especially of, of the pre-drag race era, of being born out of the subversive, like, it's a punk underground. It's a, it's, a, it's a form of punk to me. And not everyone would agree with that. Well, but, it's the misfits within right. an already misfit community. And so... When you're born kind of out of this transgressive ethos, where pushing buttons is part of the act, to now existing in a place where there's the internet and mm -hmm. everyone has that social justice opinion. And everything is re recorded for all time. Right. How, you said that word. <laughs> how does that change how you approach your work? Or well, does it? It does. I mean, I have used the N-word in my work. I did this poem uh, and Oprah, like, I, I don't even remember what it was, but it was just like, anyway, you can't, I can't now. Right. Under no circumstances. Even if you are obviously making a point and being ironic, and, and again, there's people that will say, oh, yeah, yeah, irony. 
racism dressed up as irony. I did not start doing drag almost 30 years ago so I could sneak in my secret racism. Right. And I'm sure that everyone has some hidden underlying dormant racism. There are differences between races, but I don't think anyone is less than someone else. I don't, you know, hate people. I don't right. judge people. Anyway, the, the thing is that it's all or nothing. You're either Hitler or Mother Teresa now. So there's no place to. Yeah, you, so that's one of the things. Like, right. you just can't say that word under any circumstances. You know, like if you're telling a story and you want to say how ugly this moment was. And I have a story where we were all outside the cock in New York and it was a bunch of drag queens and go-go boys and gay people and beep bop boop. And some, you know, bridge and tunnel car full of, you know, straight guys drove by and they yelled, and I can't say it, N-words and faggots back to Africa. And we busted up laughing. So I used to tell that, you know, story on stage and I, and I would say, let's get one thing straight. You know, N-words are from Africa. Faggots are not. <laughs> and anyway, you can't, I love it. You can't tell that story. Well, I... You can't use that word under any circumstances. Right. And, you know, Willem and I, a couple years ago, did uh, Penis in the Ladies Room, which is a parody of uh, the, um, oh my God, I can't, uh, I can't remember the name of the group. Anyway, of uh, Meeting in the Ladies Room. Mm -hmm. I can't believe, I can't believe, I can't remember, the remember their name. It's my job to remember words and I'm having a stroke. <laughs> Anyway, Climax right. is the name of the band. So, uh, and it has the line, Tranny in the ladies room. And the whole point was like, it doesn't work if you don't say the word. I'm playing right. this woman who is walking into a ladies room and is horrified. And the whole point is that this is what these people are afraid of. You're making it, fun of the people who have an issue with it. Exactly. You're not making fun of the people. And I right. said... And so some of the people said, you had me until you had to use that word. You're disgusting. Like they, it was ridiculous. And right. it was like, okay, if you watched an episode of Transparent. Right. Emmy award winning. Oh my God, you've changed the world. You're so wonderful. Transparent. Right. If you watched an episode of that show and they showed somebody drive by and roll down the window and yell, ah, oh, hey, you tranny. Would you be screaming at the writers and the actor and everyone involved? Just because I'm right. doing it in a comedic way right. doesn't mean that I, again, don't take it seriously. And I mean, I'm sorry that you're missing the point. If you really think I am, you know, right. a racist person who hates bisexuals and, you know, transgender. It's just ridiculous. Well, People are lazy. They're not looking at who you are because obviously your whole history speaks, again, you know, that you are not. But do you find it's very difficult to... Um, but the moment it starts, it's like trying to prove to somebody you're not a pedophile. It's like the more you say it, the more you're digging yourself into a hole. Right. I mean, how many times can you say I'm not racist? So is comedy, comedy, I assume, has changed then, like how you approach comedy because of that? Is that? Well, I mean, look at these articles about legendary, brilliant stand-up comedians who will not do college tours anymore. They right. just won't because everybody is so touchy and tender right. and they just, it really is laziness. 
It's there's no gray area. There's no critical thinking. Right. It's like bad parenting. What is interesting, though, is because, of course, with the advent of the Internet, uh, it's the blessing and the curse. Everyone has a voice and everyone has a voice. That's the blessing and the curse. Uh, And we see how these kind of fires can be stoked very quickly. But I am curious because while that is definitely a pitfall and something that you deal with in your career, I also know that you uh, utilize the Internet as a a platform in a strong way uh, politically as well. So do you find it's a a delicate balance, like in in a medium where there's just a lot of voices at once to kind of... Well, I mean... To me, the like social media, I just want to express myself. Right. So I don't really care. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if it's an echo chamber or if there's just a bunch of people yelling and no one's paying attention. Mm -hmm. I just think something and I'm like, you know what? I need to, you know, and sometimes it's in a funny way or an ironic way or, um, but, you know, I've had people say, listen, I have to stop following you. You're too political. It's just not cute anymore. And I'm like, bye. Right. It's like, I'm so sorry that you only care about the fucking clown and not the real person underneath, you know, the wig who is, you and know. Would you also say that drag queens in their way have always been political? So, Well, like I said, I mean, you know, within the gay community, we are the redheaded stepchildren, you know, right. like they... Drag was not taken seriously. There were bars that wouldn't let drag queens in the door. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, the Eagle and all these leather bars that used to hate drag queens and, like I said, wouldn't even let you in the door. Now they all have their drag race viewing nights and their, you know, drag queens hosting parties. You know, whatever pays the bills. And sure, I think it's great. We're evolving. And that's the other thing that I wanted to say is like, as far as drag and performing, it's like, let's evolve. Like, listen, I get it that not everybody can sing live. And I also know that, you know, we're talking about a reality show. Mm -hmm. So people are lip syncing to the songs they can get. And a lot of those are RuPaul's songs, you know, it's just the reality if you do the math. But... It's 2018. Right. Like, really, is the goal to look as much like a real woman as possible? It's like I've seen that trick a million times. Right. It's really actually not that hard. Right. You know, some people are better at it than others, depending on their facial structure and their genes and, you know. But, uh, yeah, I just I need things to be warped and twisted and people need to evolve. It just it needs to be going somewhere. Otherwise, it's just a parlor trick. And that's true that I've seen a million times. Now, the one thing I will say that is interesting about the changing landscape, because a lot of people are now more aware of the drag community because they saw it on TV, is that. Hopefully, it's sort of like when Twilight came out, I used to have this argument with horror fans who were like, oh, these stupid, sparkly vampires. And I'm like, look, that's not my thing. But if one kid reads that book and is like, oh, maybe I'll watch The Lost Boys or read Dracula and then they're all of a sudden into vampires and then we've got a new horror fan. If drag race represents a certain kind of queen and that sparks your interest and then it draws you to discover people out in the world, I'm excited for that. I just hope that they look beyond what they see on TV. Well, that's one of the problems. I mean, I grew up in a time before 
the internet and right. before having a contraption in my hand where you could look up anything. Right. But I knew who Shirley Temple was. I knew big band music. I knew old silent movies. I knew all sorts of stuff. And you're either a curious person or you're not. Right. So I have no problem and I don't begrudge, you know, young people, but don't comment on my video that when I move my jaw a certain way, I am ripping off detox. Right. Detox will tell you, first of all, you know, and I'm not saying, you know, I have a song with Alaska called I Invented That. Yes. And, you know, sort of half joking, but it's like, don't read me to filth um, because you think I'm ripping someone off. Right. Do your fucking homework. And I mean, I'm not sure how you look it up, but I'm just saying, you know, like, trust me, I right. don't need to. And first of all, it's all been done. Right. Second of all, fuck you. <laughs> I <laughs> ran out of creative things to say. Okay. What happened to Carrie? Well, that's, I was just about to bring that around. Uh, you mentioned that at your core, you believe that, you know, and you are a comedian. That's, that's where you, that's your foundation. You're a comedian. That's where you come from. That's where, what you do. Um, one thing that I've always been interested to I thought you were going to say, I beg to differ. Yeah. <laughs> I don't find you funny at all. And I'm so glad you're here. Uh, no, what I was going to ask is one thing that's interesting is, is, uh, I've talked to some people about in the past is how comedy and horror in a way are very closely aligned. And I wanted to get as someone who writes comedy and has written comedy for people who exist also in a spooky space like Elvira, what do you think the relationship between comedy and horror is? Well, it's like when you say, you know, if I don't laugh, I'll cry. Right. You know, it's a uh, laugh is like a comedy scream. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, um, that's why, you know, Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 are two of my favorite movies. And I was so thrilled when Drag Me to Hell came out. And it was so a return good. to that maniacal, out of control, gross out, terrifying, funny. That's the kind of dreams I used to have when I was a kid. <laughs> no, seriously, like I'm sort of laughing, but I'm like terrified. It's just I love that that roller coaster ride. What I really like too is uh, looking across your career at some of the some of the the beats of Jackie Beat. Uh, we talked about how uh, the really rich Italian Satanist is an homage to the Dario Argentos and Uvra, uh, and how Carrie has sort of been woven through. And you talk about like that slapstick of Evil Dead. The timing, you know, of, yeah. of horror is similar to the timing of comedy. One of my favorite moments of all time. Don't forget your question. Okay, is. When the camera just like shows that uh, that deer head, oh, that, yeah. that trophy on the wall, like laughing, it's the best. That is me in a nutshell. <laughs> that is it a GIF or a GIF? There's a big argument over that. Anyway, that GIF. I like that to say moment, GIF because it makes me think of peanut butter. Me too. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> but I just that that moment, which is like it's. You know, that's it's me. just irreverent hysteria, which right. I love. Um, I cut you off. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Uh, what I was going to ask about is um, there's a, a short that you did that played at Outfest that began as a play that you wrote mm -hmm. called Screen Team Scream. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to, to ask you a bit about that because it is marrying your your comedy and your drag with your love of horror. 
And uh, tell me about that project. Well, I'll tell you the most interesting thing about that project is that Kevin Williamson came to see the play a couple of times (laughs) and maybe a year or a year and a half later, from what I understand, before Scream, wrote and sold Scream. Interesting. So it's a bunch of kids at a party and it's all about the rules. It's listen, Scream is very different than Scream Teen Scream. Right. But it's you could see the spark there. Um, And again, this is going with my theme of everyone's ripped me off and I invented that. Um, (laughs) So bitter. No. Yeah. Scream Teen Scream was just like, again, just every horror cliche. And uh, yeah, just. You know, an, a reason for us to have fun on stage, and and then uh, you made you made it into a short film that played out fast. But, but because it's a play, have there been remountings of it? Have other people done productions of it, or no? So that's just something you're not interested no. in. I, listen, no one's approached. I mean, I've been approached about a couple of plays I've written, but they're so specifically written for me and my friends, right? You know, I love mashups and, you know, we did whatever happened to Busty Jane because I was thinking, how am I going to get gay asses in theater seats? Right. And I was like, oh, whatever happened to Baby Jane meets 80s porn. So I play Busty Jane hard on this broken down way beyond her prime porn star with huge tits like. I got them the day of the first show and I was knocking stuff over. They were just giant. And my best friend Mario, who's in Dirty Sanchez, plays Branch Hard On, you know, instead of Blanche. And he's the first gay power bottom and he's in a wheelchair in full leather. And it's just the funniest thing in the world. And seriously, we hit the jackpot. It sold out like, you know, and we did that in L.A. and New York. But I can't imagine anybody else doing it, which is probably very egotistical to think. And then I just recently wrote something that I've wanted to do for a million years, which is Misery Loves Company, which is a mashup of Misery and Three's Company, where the world's biggest Joyce DeWitt fan pulls her out of a car and nurses her back to health. I want to say that right now. Uh, that, it, just description I'm alone. I'm hoping to do it with Drew Drogi. Um Well, you know, I know that you have been in films and you've written for a lot of like very notable people and you've written plays and you write a lot of shows for yourself. Have you ever thought of writing a movie? I have written, (laughs) I have written movies. Oh, God, it's a lot of work. It is. And I wrote a movie called uh, The Magic Hour and it is literally two movies in one. It's like this sort of coming-of-age office comedy, and then right in the middle, they're driving, and they pull the car over, and the sun's going down, and the whole movie changes, and then it becomes like after hours, and it's 1969, and the whole thing is that they're going to this party that they think is going to change their lives, this little get-together that this woman on a plane, you know, invited them to. And anyway, it ends up that they never make it and they think, you know, oh, it's a sign. I'm going to move back to Arizona. You know, I wasn't meant to be here in Hollywood. And then it turns out that it was Sharon Tate. Oh, my God. uh, Yeah. So they're in jail. They end up in jail and they see on the TV that everybody was slaughtered at the house. It's very, you know, again, it's just all about the twist. Right. So, yes, I've written screenplays. (laughs) Nobody's interested. No, it's just so much work. 
I know that sounds terrible. I love that these days you can come up with an idea and do a treatment. Yeah. So if they're like, eh, or I love it, as opposed to like all that work and like, right. You know, because now people will just pay for an idea or at least tell me if, you know, if I'm barking up the wrong tree. Well, I guess it begs the question then, because I asked about movies and we've talked a little bit about the the different spots on your resume of things that you've done. Is there anything that you haven't done yet that you would love to do? Well, I usually answer that with I would love to do Broadway, mm-hmm. but I know myself well enough to know that I would get so bored doing the same thing over and over and over again. I mean, if you look at my drag... Seriously, when it's time to sit down and paint, I mean, I have a signature makeup, but I do. Listen, I love Lady Bunny and Coco Peru and these people with these amazing, iconic signature looks and even a silhouette, if you will. But I'm all over the place. It's like one minute I'm doing Golden Girls drag and then I'm doing somebody's mom and then I'm doing, you know, like, you know, Sarah Palin and then I'm doing like, you know, big, you know, heavy metal, you know, satanic rock bitch. <laughs> I mean, I do have sort of a general look and obviously my makeup is kind but I get bored. Right. So I've done every hair color, hairstyles, you know, different eras. Always, always mixing it up. So Broadway just wouldn't be for you because I don't think it would. So that's usually my stock answer. But then I realize I would probably go crazy. But I, I want to write a book. Mm-hmm. But then I think, like, does anyone care? I mean, I know some people do. It's sure. like, you know, 99, I, I'm, I'm self-aware enough to know that 99.9% of the world doesn't know who the hell I am. But then there's people out there with tattoos of me, you know, so it's kind of a fine line. What's that like, knowing that you are tattooed on someone else's body? Well, as a, a self-centered, egotistical bitch, I love it. <laughs> no, I, it's, at first it was a little weird. And especially since this was... It was pre-drag race. Now there's a lot of drag queens that, you know, people get their tattoos. But I I took it as a, wow. I mean, come on. How can you not? It's a compliment for sure. Yeah. I mean, so many people have Elvira tattoos. Right. It's crazy. I would argue she's probably the most tattooed drag queen in terms of people who get yeah, uh, tattoos you. of them. Maybe Divine. I've seen a lot of divine tattoos yeah. over the years. Uh, well, here's a Broadway crossover to bring us all back full oh circle God. to, you know what I'm going to ask you, don't Ugh. you? Tell me your thoughts on the Carrie musical. I could not hate it more. I feel the same exact way about the Carrie musical that I do about any remake or sequel mm-hmm. or prequel. Let Carrie fucking die. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, because you hold Carrie so near and dear to you, of course, there's never going to be a version it's that's going to It's also horrible. But I do have to ask, what is it about the remakes that um, get it wrong, in your opinion? They're horrible? No. <laughs> First of all, why would you remake something that is nearly perfect? I right. mean, I know that we live in the city that thought, making a shot-for-shot color remake of Psycho was a good idea. Go fuck yourself. If you want to sit down and watch Psycho and be inspired and think this generation needs a new Psycho, then do it. But don't call it Psycho and don't... Oh, it's just horrible. The Stepford Wives? Don't even get me started. That is the ultimate... To me, that is the best example of the worst... A remake ever. 
You have this movie that is so subtle and so amazing about a flawed, complex, sort of torn, you know, both ways woman. She's this artist who is now like moving to the middle of, you know, the Connecticut suburbs to be a mom and giving up her career and all her creativity. Anyway, and then the remake has that character is Nicole Kidman as a reality TV producer who in the first five minutes, they show you that she just fucks people over to be successful. So this woman's soul and heart is in jeopardy, but you just told me she doesn't have either. She has no soul. She has no heart. Why would I care? It's like the remake of Poseidon Adventure. Right. Five minutes into the movie, that ship turns over. We got to get to the action. I don't, who just died? That was some woman with dark hair. Why would I care whether she dies or not? In the original, you hear their story. Where are they going? They're going to, you know, meet, you know, the Jewish couple who's going to meet their grandson for the first time. Like you're rooting for these people. You know them. You don't care if people live or die if you don't know them. That's true. I mean, you know what I mean. (laughs) So anyway, and then the remakes and sequels and all that of Carrie, it just, like I said, first of all, the mean teen girl thing has been done to death. Right. It's like, it just doesn't read the same way. You know, what we were saying about Nancy Allen, it's like they were, I don't know how to explain when something works and something doesn't, but the new one was like, it doesn't work, first of all, in this day and age. It just doesn't work. And I'm a purist. I'll be the first to admit. But like the sequel, Carrie 2, The Rage. Uh. Let's make, okay, I was watching it and I'm like, this movie could not possibly be any worse. And all of a sudden... As if on cue, what do they do? The worst possible thing in the world, which is cut to a flashback of the superior, most iconic scene ever, the prom scene. So you go from dingy, boring, no nothing, lackluster to, oh my God, now I remember how good it could be. (laughs) But how do you really feel? And then the remake, it was just like, are you kidding me? With her hands, doing things with her hands, it was so, God, I just, and again, I'm bitter. All right, well, then I'll reverse that real quick. Obviously, other cinematic versions of Carrie don't work. Did you like the book? Did you read the book? Uh, I've read the book many times. I assumed. Um, and, and I just bought the book, The Secret, the, the what is it? This, oh my God, now I'm going to forget the title. It's like a 1948 book. I was just reading something and it's somebody revealed to me what book she's reading in the, um, in the library. Oh yeah. It's Telekinesis like, thought that, to be the, you know, uh, so anyway. So you tracked that book secret, down? Well, they, they named the title and it's like, I wonder, clickety click, first edition for like yeah. 20 bucks and it's the secret God, secret science behind miracles. That's what it is. The secret science behind miracles. So I bought that. But I've read the book. It's not great. It was I his think, first book, I yeah, believe. Yeah, Stephen King is yeah. right. He, yeah. he agrees that it's not great. Right. But you can tell there's greatness in it. And mm-hmm. the whole, is it White Commission or... Yeah, because it's told like an epistolary style. Yeah. Where it's all like newspapers. And, and, and a lot of people yeah. have tried to do 
uh, versions right. like that, and it's. Mm, I feel that could go into Christopher Guest territory really fast if you don't do it right, like where it's a fake. Okay, documentary. well, I saw the musical here in L.A. Did you see it? Uh, I didn't see it here in L.A., but I. I wanted to commit suicide. <laughs> I wanted to poster run, reviews by Jackie. Beat. I wanted to <laughs> run across the gymnasium, back up against a wall beneath the uh, basketball, you know, <laughs> hoop, and scream, carry, and be crushed. Um, oh my God! First of all, they have a girl sitting in a chair while you're walking in, taking your seat, and it's Sue Snell laughing one minute pulling her hair the next she's in torment she's crazy because what if she it's like uh fucking theater 101 bullshit 35 year old high school students which fine in the movie but right you know and then they do this the opening is like them walking in slow motion hitting you know slapping each other on the butt and like hey high five we're teenagers i was just like uh, i was with my friend muffy bolding and i literally was digging my nails into her thigh <laughs> and watching piper lori nod off and people were just like there were you know cast members from the movie this is just sounding bitter. Well, then let's transition because you mentioned <laughs> oh my you, God. You, you mentioned Piper Laurie, and uh, this will be a good cap to the celebration of Carrie in this episode, which I know was one of the reasons you wanted to come on and, and, and yeah. sing about your love of, of, of Carrie. A couple years, was it two years ago? The 35th anniversary of Carrie. Was it two years ago? My God, time flies yeah, when I, you have I, one foot in the grave. I recall because I wore a red baseball cap in honor of PJ Souls, and that was before red baseball caps were verbatim pop culturally. Oh, oh. So, um, but it, they did this grand event uh, presented through Scream Factory uh, down at the Ace Hotel here in downtown Los Angeles. And a lot of the cast members of Carrie showed up. And Brian Fuller, executive producer of Hannibal, curated a QA, and you were there and uh, participated mm -hmm. in, the, in the event as someone who sees this movie at 13 years old and mm -hmm. now you're on stage for the 35th anniversary with piper laurie and nancy well, allen and tell me about that first of all i mean it was a moment because i'm sitting there in the theater watching the movie which i could watch a million times right i really could i saw Right before he died, I saw a special screening of The Exorcist and Dick Smith was there, mm, which was is amazing. amazing. And some guy got up there and he's like, I want you to know that we tracked down this copy of the movie. You're going to see it exactly the way people saw it in the theater in 1973. Is it 73? Sweet Jesus, I'll never hear yeah. the end of this. Because <laughs> Poseidon Adventure is 72 and I get them mixed up. So anyway, I was so excited. They start playing it and it's that. The version you've never seen where the demon face pops up on the hood over the, you know, the vent over oh, the... Yeah. It was like, I was like, this is not what people saw in 1970. Anyway, it dawned on me. I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm over The Exorcist. I'm over this movie. If I never saw this movie again, I'd be fine. But I love Carrie and I could watch Carrie a million times. So here's my point. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I was sitting there watching Carrie and it was like a religious experience. And then not only that, I look over and in my row is Nancy Allen and Piper Laurie and, you know, and these people who were in the movie. Right. 
It was amazing. And then, you know, if you were there, you know, that moment where they changed the lights. Oh, my gosh. In the yeah. theater. When she looks up and turns off the lights and then they go to red and the entire th- people scream. Whoever curated that event knew exactly what they were doing in that moment. Yeah. What happened in the theater when uh, the prom powers begin, uh, they hit the moment in time with the movie where all the lights in the theater went red and the audience went Lost wild. It. It's it was, on yeah. YouTube. Is it? I yeah. need to go yeah. find that. Yeah. 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 So that was amazing. That was amazing. Um, there was something else I was going to say. Oh, what also is amazing is now like Nancy Allen is a friend. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't hang out, but she like came to my house and we did a photo shoot in my Carrie office, which is, you know, completely covered with Carrie stuff. And, uh, and on my birthday, like Betty Buckley and, Nancy Allen both, you know, wish me like happy birthday. And Betty Buckley came to my birthday party at the Abbey many years ago. I mean, I never in a million years could have, you know, imagined like I would know somebody. Oh, and here's a crazy story. A million years ago, I used to work at American Rag on La Brea. And this girl came in and I don't know how it came up, but she said her mother was the costumer for Carrie. And I lost it. Like she, I looked at her. I was like, I literally grabbed her hand. I was like, is there anything, a button, a piece of fabric, anything? She's like, there's nothing. They threw everything away. They thought this movie was going to be nothing. First of all, everything was covered in, you know, caro syrup. Right. Which Uh, from my experience can ruin an outfit pretty fast. Pretty, pretty quickly. yeah. Yeah. So there's nothing. And you know me, I mean, I'm a collector, so. I've always been looking, and then recently, Piper Laurie had a big auction, mm-hmm. and all her stuff was online, and there was only two things from Carrie. One was a uh, needlepoint wall hanging that you can see in a few pictures. It didn't really, it wasn't recognizable to me, but they showed still photographs, and it right. obviously was on the set, that... They gifted to her when it was all over. And it wasn't giant. It was just like a small thing with like three words. I don't even remember. I wanted that so bad and I bid on it, but it sold for a lot more than I was willing to pay. And she also had her Bible bag. When she goes door to door, she has this black bag, which was actually her bag. And she suggested and Brian De Palma said, yeah, that that works. So, but there's nothing. Hmm. My God. Well, you know, it's it's so interesting because in that era of filmmaking, no one anticipated that people would be obsessing over these movies yeah. so many years later that they didn't really plan to hold on to that stuff. So many things get lost. Uh, and it's a shame. Um, beca- I mean, can you imagine that dress on a mannequin? I <laughs> Bloody or otherwise, but there's got to be a f- it several It should be in versions. the Smithsonian. It should. Yes. The bucket, like, um, there's a million little. I'm just saying, like, a prom decor. Well, it all burned down. Um, that, that, the potato peeler, that, <laughs> you know, the the famous potato peeler from Carrie. I want to tell you one thing because I was telling somebody this, and they were like, "Oh my god, are you kidding?" Uh, I had a fan slash friend. Well, both. I, I can't remember. Sometimes it's hard to remember if somebody started out a fan and then became a friend, or the right. other, you know. But I had this. F- friend who worked at uh, a big Hollywood collectibles store Mm -hmm. back in the day. So this is, you know, in the 80s. And he used to just send me stuff in the mail all the time. And he knew I loved Carrie. And one day in the mail came original proof sheets 
oh, wow. from the set with red wax pencils circling all the ones that, you know, became famous. Right. And so there's just pages and pages and pages. And the best are Piper Laurie in the doorway, all rigged up, all hooked up. But someone's like, you know, giving her some coffee with a straw from a styrofoam cup. And she's laughing. It's like she's all, you know, she's got all these implements in her and she's all bloody and she's just cracking up. Well, you know, if you're going to if you're going to die terribly by your daughter's hand, you might as well have a good time. Honey, that's how I feel about it. Yeah, just clean the kitchen afterwards or destroy the whole house so I don't have to deal with it. That's the better option. Uh, <laughs> who on, who even wants to deal with the cleanup? So because the show is in honor of horror movies, and obviously we've uh, spent a lot of time talking about Carrie and justly so, uh, but you mentioned throughout the course of this other movies that you really were fond of, like Evil Dead and... Uh, I have to ask, what uh, have you seen anything recently that has inspired you, or is there anything that you've revisited that you just adore? Well, I know it's not that recent, but I really do. I really did love Identity. Oh, with the John I, Cusack. I, yeah, movie. again, yeah. it's not that recent at all. But it was one of those movies. To me, I know this sounds crazy, but it's such. It's just good filmmaking, mm-hmm. and I love a good twist. And it reminds me of the scene in Vertigo when she writes the letter explaining exactly who she is, what she did, why she did it, how it happened. Right. And then she stands up with the letter and she crumples it up and throws it away. It's just purging and I was like, it out. Yeah. That was for the audience. Right. That was the most brilliant way to explain. So I felt that way. I remember when I was watching Identity, I was like, and some people hate it. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, that's the dumbest fucking twist. I love it because I, it's old school, 10 little Indians. And then there were not, you know, that sort of like, we're all at a motel being killed. It's interesting because I actually saw Identity in a test screening before it, like several months before it came out. And I remember the audience being very like right down the middle. Some people yeah. were like, this is crazy. And other yeah. people were like, I hate these surprises. Where but you, know? you know what? Right. But I loved I it. Lo- yeah. That's the way it should be. Yeah. Either like, I love that or I hate it. Not like, eh, I was young, young Kenya. Um, but I saw The Witch. Oh, The Witch is great. And I was like, this literally could have been made in 1972. Mm-hmm. And I could smell those people. And I said that to a friend of mine. I said, I'm not kidding you. I could smell those people. And they said, that's so funny that you say that because the director mentions that in um, in an interview about how like it was very important, you know, like yeah. to get that across that. I, I don't know. It was a that movie definitely had that satanic panic feel of the seventies, and the, the there's a death scene in there where you could like feel it. Like very rare do I see a death scene as a horror fan now that I'm just like, oh, that kid's dying. Like that's awful. But yeah. it, it was really visceral, and we haven't had one of those in a really yeah, long time. I really liked that. It was so different. I'm trying to think. I know there was something I saw recently that I really liked, but. I'd rather talk about stuff I hate. <laughs> I hated The Conjuring. I hate all those. First of all, sweet Jesus on the cross. God, give that fucking girl from The Ring a break. She's in every movie. Like, is it just me? I'm just saying that... That style that, of that mantra. That derivative, oh, oh yeah. like, uh, you know... Well, I, she I, had to upgrade from VHS <laughs> somehow. <laughs> oh, <Yes>. my God. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. Yeah. 
And the conjuring was just beyond derivative. Like everything was some reference to something else. But there was I'm so mad. There was something that I saw that I did like. Although The Conjuring is uh, based on two real people, the the paranormal yeah, investigator. Yeah, I mean, I know from, what you mean. But from yeah. Amityville Horror. Yeah. But, uh, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yeah. Uh, the real Lorraine Warren looks uh, a lot like Beth Grant in real life, as opposed to Vera Farmiga, who plays her in the movie. And frankly, I want the movie where Beth Grant plays her, because I just feel like... not No offense to Vera Farmiga, who I adore, but I just kind of like... I would love to see Beth Grant hot step in and yeah. busting some ghosts. But now, I just, I feel like anybody who thinks that doll is scary is lying to me. <laughs> there is nothing scary about that doll. I don't no. know. Maybe it's just me. Well, I don't know. I'm not very much afraid of, of uh, toys, mostly because I read the news and there's much scarier things. But uh, That's true. <laughs> well, uh, before we head off into the night, what's coming up for you? What's new in the world of Jackie Beat? What, where can people uh, see you next? I'm going to backtrack a little. Okay. I did love uh, Stranger Things. Oh, okay. So wasn't in the theaters, but I, I really did love that, and I got into it. Um, what's next for me? Yeah. Well, you know, we do the Golden Girls live. and Here in Los Angeles. Yes. The, but you travel with that show, too, right? No. No. No, okay. no because... First of all, there's issues. Right. First of all, there's it's a big cast, so right. that's expensive. Second of all, you know, it's one thing when you do it in the basement of a Mexican restaurant, nobody's really coming after you. Right. And then there's a lot of queens doing it in other cities, you know, right. and I'm just like, you know, we all have our territory. Sure. But, you know, we've been doing that. So this time we decided to take a little break. We're coming mm-hmm. back in August with that. But in May, we're doing Who's the Boss? Oh. And... The difference between Who's the Boss is Golden Girls we do straight. We just do, because it's so well written. Right. And and the characters are such, you know, archetypes. And everybody loves them. And we do it with affection. And, you know, we may warp a few things. But we do two episodes. But for Who's the Boss, it's really, and I don't mean this in a bad way, it's not well written. It's a true sitcom. You know, it's for kids. And it's of that era, too. There's that saccharine kind of moment. So we're only doing the pilot but I rewrote it completely and it's absolutely filthy and ridiculous. And there are musical numbers and a dance number. And the twist is that Danny Pintaro is going to play himself. Wow. That's yeah. great. Danny Pintaro is coming and he's going to play uh, Jonathan Bauer. Who he played in the original. Yes. Who's the boss for you younger listeners. Go back and do your TV research. Wait a minute. Young people listen to this. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, we hope so. Yeah, so we're doing that. And then Sherry Vine and I tour quite a bit with our show, Battle of the Bitches, where we go parody to parody. And I, we just booked our first October show, Battle of the Witches, which oh. is a Halloween-themed. Definitely of interest to Dead for Filth listeners. Where, is, yes. where will that be? Oh, geez. I think it's Toronto. <laughs> well, we have some fans up there in Canada. Please go see Jackie and Sherry and witch it out. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, a lot of traveling. I'm going to uh, Australia again. I'm going to go do Life Ball in Vienna. Just a lot of stuff. And uh, and as we mentioned when I came in, uh, I'm writing a sequel to the porn, the award-winning, I'm an award-winning porn screenwriter now. This is a great place before we wrap up the episode to marry the world of queer and horror and sex and, and filth and yeah. all sorts of... Let's, let's touch on that before we head off into the night. Tell me about 
the horror porn that you wrote. Well, I wrote a screenplay called Screen uh, no, called Oh my god, I almost called uh, Scared Stiff. And uh, not to be confused with the uh, Elvira pinball machine. Um, Yeah. Good callback. Yeah. So anyway, I wrote it like maybe 13 or 14 years ago Mm -hmm. and gave it to my friend, Shishi LaRue, who directs porn. And it just kind of sat there and she never did it. And then all of a sudden she was like, do you still have that? And I found it and she did it. And a lot of people really liked it. And I won some, I think it was a, I want to say a grabby or a, anyway, they have porn awards and I won for this screenplay. Do you know how easy it is to write a screenplay? It's the only thing easier is doing wardrobe for, uh, <laughs> for porn. For porn. I no. imagine that the, the screenplay for an adult film would be like three to four pages of setup and then you do a break for sex. Yes. So would a feature length adult film be about 30 pages if at all? Oh, it was not that long. <laughs> and you have and a- the funnest thing is to, to, to watch them try to act. Like, they take it so seriously. God love them. Oh. <laughs> but so I'm doing um, uh, Scared Stiff 2 Ass Reunion. Well, I where mean. Where they all get together 10 years later. And what could a person in the world of horror want more than a franchised opportunity you have now right who knows maybe we're gonna get we're gonna get a scared stiff a year and for the rest of the decade oh i hope so (laughs) because it's such big money as you can imagine (laughs) i'm sure those those uh those erotic horror dollars yeah well porn's you know Everyone's making money off porn right now because it's not like you can get it for free all over the internet. <laughs> oh, the day that happens. <laughs> Jackie, where can people find you? Oh, that's what I was going to say. Oh, people could also, you know, check out my schedule uh, on MissJackieBeat.com. Mm-hmm. MissJackieBeat.com because I'm single. And it used to be just JackieBeat.com, but then some Chinese corporation held my. My website for ransom. You know, you miss one payment and they're like, now nah, we own it. Oh, that happened to me. I'm yeah. So MissJackieBeat.com and then on all social media um, that people my age do, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't do all that other stuff. No, but I do uh, Facebook, um, Twitter and uh, Instagram. It's just JackieBeat. Excellent. And I need followers. It's ridiculous. My tweets are so good, you bastard people. They are. Jackie uh, is one of my favorite presences on Twitter. Uh, So please follow her. Also check out Jackie's many, many different things that she's up to. Go see her out on the road. uh, Listen to her music. You know, just keep up with what she's up to. Just do it. Any parting (laughs) thoughts, Jackie, before we we go away? Well, yeah. Okay. I thought you might. (laughs) Uh, It has more to do with drag than horror. I'll take it. I just want to say, like, you know, because drag is so popular right now and there's people out there considering it, you know. I love that it's actually, like, a career option now. Right. Will there ever be a drag union before you continue? I'm curious. If if enough people do it, is that a thing? I don't don't think so. No. I don't think they they can do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, but I was just going to say, like, if you want to do drag, it's like just, you know... I see on Instagram, like, everyone's face looks the same now. Right. And so just, you know, you need to decide 
whether you're a creative person or not. Right. And again, not everybody can sing live, but if you're going to lip sync a song, maybe not lip sync the number one song that, you know, the DJ literally has played twice already, you know, before right. the show started. Do a story song, do a song that like, you know, do a song like from Dolly Parton, you know, like in the late 60s, like some know every word, you know, just right. I don't know, just do it. Just do it, do it right. Just do it right. And and try to be unique. Try to be unique or And I really am saying this with love. Oh, I, I know it, it seems yeah. bitchy, but I'm just like No, I think that try to be unique is is a really good piece of advice in a creative world where uh people tend to replicate the things that they they think people want to see. Yeah, and listen, I've done the same thing. I really have gravitated towards it's a groove. Yep. Right. It's so easy to get sucked into like, you know, oh, I need to do this if I want to be. and it's like just do what you do. But the people who who endure yourself included, they don't follow a path they blaze a trail. And you did, and <sighs> I, I believe that you continue to. So, oh, thank you. After all, she did invent that. Jackie Beat, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was really, really fun. Well, it was an honor to have you. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck.